We are continuing our series through the book of Corinthians, and I'm going to give a little bit of a different kind of a sermon this morning. I'm going to preach on the same verse I preached on two weeks ago, but it won't be quite the same sermon. Here's the background to the message I want to give here this morning. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to study to show ourselves approved, and that, um, uh, that we ought to be ready, the Bible says. Peter says, be ready, be prepared, whenever anyone ask you to give an account or, a, or, or a, a defense of why you believe what you believe, why you have the faith that you have, you must be ready to give, Peter says, a, a defense. The word there in Greek is apologia. We get the word apologetics from it. It means we ought to be able to give an intelligent answer to people when they ask the question, why are you a Christian as opposed to a Buddhist? Why are you a Christian as opposed to uh, a Muslim? Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Believers... We need to understand that we are believing something which to the natural mind is very peculiar. You're believing that God Almighty, creator of the universe, became a human being some 2,000 years ago and died for your sins and then rose from the dead. That's not like an average, everyday, common sense piece of wisdom. That's an unusual thing to believe. And so people, we have to understand, have the right to ask the question, Why would you believe that? What a strange belief that is. And the Bible says that it is required that we be able to give an intelligent answer. We, all, we often give to our testimony. Well, God changed my life. I believe in Jesus Christ. He lives in my heart and, and uh, you know, He's revolutionized you know, my life in so many ways. And God uses that and praise God for that. And that also, the Bible says, we must be prepared to do boldly. To be a witness. Testify about the power of God in our life. But we also have to understand this. For some people whose heart is open, that testimony will be enough to bring them into the kingdom. But for others, especially in our post-Christian age, this culture in which we live, which is getting farther and farther from rudimentary, uh, rudimentary Christian principles, you need to anticipate that uh, that won't cut it for a lot of people. You say, oh, you know, I had an experience of God that changed my life. And they'll say, oh, I'm happy for you. You know, and I had an experience with uh, some power crystals that changed my life. And, 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 you know, I talked to the, my, my, my spirit guide who was channeled through this channeler and man, did I have an experience. And this Buddhist that I know had a wonderful experience and the Muslim I know had a wonderful experience. You know, and, and everybody I know who's a religious person has a wonderful experience and now you're right, right along with the rest of them. Hallelujah. You know, uh, everybody has an experience. And so we need to be able to say, uh, uh, to some extent at least, give an account for the faith that we have. And that's part of what I want to do this morning. I want to do two things. Number one, I want to equip the army, with, a, uh, with, with uh, a, a line of reasoning that uh, grounds the Christian faith so that you will be ready to give an answer for those who ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Okay, so this is going to be kind of a, a training class. We here at, at Willow Hills Church believe that heart and mind go hand in hand. We need to be passionate about worship, the passionate Christian life. It's good to get emotional. It's good to get excited. It's good to get enthusiastic. You know, praise God for all that. But you also need to have some good, solid, rational, intellectual even grounding. I don't believe for a second that the heart and the mind are, are antithetical. That, that being enthusiastic and passionate about the Christian life means you can't be intellectual about the Christian life. In fact, I believe the two go hand in hand. The more you think about it, the more, the more you think about it, the, the more convinced you get of the Christian faith, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the more excited you get about Him. So this is going to be thinking time. Ready to put on your thinking caps at 9 in the morning? Okay, thinking time. All right. All right, let's go for it. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 
Paul says in verse 2, this is the verse I'm going to preach on again, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, to those who are holy, who are called to be holy, we preached on that two weeks ago, together with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now that verse looks rather mundane, perhaps. It's just a normal greeting, perhaps. Uh, uninteresting, perhaps. Boring, even, perhaps, to you. But I want to submit to you here, and I'll try to show this in the next 40 minutes, that in that little verse is found the proof of the truth of Christianity. And to believers here this morning, I want this to be an equipping time to equip you to be able to share uh, more intelligently why you believe what you believe. And for the non-believers that are here this morning, I want this whole message to be a challenge to you and asking you the question, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? Because I'm going to give you grounds uh, that, that, that show you that you should believe. Let's pray. Father, let your word come alive here this morning. I thank you, Lord God, that your word says, come, let us reason. Thank you, Lord God, that your word tells us, uh, Lord, that uh, you've called us to worship you with all of our mind, as well as all of our heart, all of our body, and all of our soul. So, Lord God, this morning we're going to think out loud about, uh, about our faith. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd use it to uh, solidify the believers that are here and convince and convict the non-believers that are here, Lord God, to bring them into your eternal kingdom. Holy Spirit, when all is said and done, this isn't my job, it is your job. And so, Lord, we ask you, we invite you, we beckon you to come in our midst and have your way and do your work in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's what you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, you Corinthians who are at Corinth, there's only two things that are significant about churches, where they're located and who they worship. You're at Corinth, you're the church of God, and who you worship is Jesus Christ. He says, to all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The term call upon there in Jewish culture means to worship or to pray to. And so throughout the Bible you have this phrase, call upon the Lord and he shall hear your prayer. Uh, Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved and so on and so on. Paul says, you call upon the Lord. The word for Lord there in Greek is kudios, which uh, is the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton. Isn't that exciting? Uh, what it means is this. This is the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. It's translated kudios. And for, so for a monotheistic Jew like Paul, he's saying, you Christians are distinguished by this way. You, along with all Christians throughout the Roman Empire, you and everywhere else, you call upon God. You call upon Yahweh. You pray to, you worship Yahweh. And then he names Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both their Lord and ours. Now here's what, now note also this. Paul isn't creating a new doctrine here. He's not like saying, hey, I, gotta, I, I want to teach you something new. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's kudios. Rather, Paul presupposes that this has been the practice of Christians, uh, is the standard assumption of Christians wherever there are Christians and has always been that way. Paul is appealing to them as the, what, what we all have in common and have always had in common is that we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ who is both, who's our Lord and their Lord. Paul is writing this in 54 A.D. 54 or 55 A.D. Jesus died around 33 A.D. So there's been about 21 or 22 years since Jesus died. 
And here Paul, a monotheistic Jew, is saying that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Question. How do you explain that? How do you account for that? That's the question. What must Jesus Christ have been like? This Jew in the first century, in a monotheistic culture where everybody believes in one God and that God is not a man, what must Jesus have been like to have convinced his disciples that he was the incarnation of that one Lord God? To the point, when, to the point where after he leaves, they are worshiping him as Lord. This is, I believe, the most interesting and uh, difficult question to answer in history unless you believe that Jesus Christ was the Lord God. Okay? And, and so I'm going to chew on this question here for a little bit. This is what's called apologetics. Put on your thinking caps. Follow me here. Uh, I first want us to notice this. In asking this question, in posing this question the way I have, already you can see that Jesus Christ is in a different category than any other religious leader. So we've got this thing in our culture uh, where everybody wants to be sort of a Christian. Uh, you know, they want to believe that Jesus was a good guy, a nice prophet, a wonderful teacher, maybe even an ascended master. But they don't want to say that He's the one Lord God, creator of the universe, savior of the world, because that would mean that you'd have to bow your knee to Him and dedicate your life to them. And what people in our culture want is to have a plethora of religious teachers, one of whom is Jesus Christ, but He's not the same part as, as Gandhi or Buddha or Confucius or Lao Tzu or whoever you might name. But you see, if we look at the evidence that is available to us, that is one option that is not available to us. Uh, Jesus Christ, you either have to say that He's the Lord God, or you have to say that He's something less than even a decent human being. Let me put it this way. I was, uh, uh, for a while, my dad and I, who, before I was a Christian, uh, actually... Actually, I had been a Christian for about a year, and then I went to the University of Minnesota, and my faith just blew apart uh, because I, I confronted all sorts of questions that I had no answers for. And unfortunately, there wasn't any Christians that I knew who could give a defense for the faith that they had. None of them could give an apologia, a, a rational grounding for the faith. So it seemed to me that all the smart people were on the outside of Christianity, and so I got myself on the outside of Christianity. I wanted to believe, but my mind wouldn't let me believe. So I was used to going to church, and so I started going to a Unitarian church. Unitarian churches, uh, most of them are agnostic or atheist. But, you know, they don't believe. Some believe in God, some don't. But it's actually sort of a, a, a of an intellectual think tank. So my dad and I, who kind of fancied ourselves as intellectuals, would go to this Unitarian church and discuss religious topics and philosophical topics and whatnot. In one of the messages that were given here at this Unitarian church, uh, the, the title of it was, it was given by a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota, and the title of it was "Why Socrates." was a greater man than Jesus. as the name of his sermon, or speech, whatever you want to call it. And here's what he said. Um, a great man is one who um, doesn't draw attention to himself. A great man is somebody who helps other people actualize their full potentiality. That's what a great person is. A great person will help people under, uh, realize their own inner spirit, their own inner genius, and will help them, uh, you know, teach them to rely upon themselves and not be reliant upon uh, the, the, the teacher. And by that criteria, Socrates was a great teacher. 
Because Socrates, he described himself as the midwife of ideas. He would give birth to ideas, but then step aside. Because he believed that all knowledge was innate in all people. And he didn't want people to become reliant upon him, to look to him for something special. Rather, he was just one of the crowd. And that's what a great human being does. Goes around helping other people actualize their full potentiality. Socrates was a great man. But Jesus, this guy said, of course, we don't believe the Gospels are inspired, and we don't believe that the Gospels are infallible or anything like that. They're just, you know, first century documents that pass on the legacy of Jesus. You know, but there's a, there's a core of historical truth there in these Gospels. And he says, as you read the Gospels, well, you don't get the same impression you get from reading uh, Plato's accounts of Socrates. Jesus went around drawing attention to himself. In fact, when Jesus died, you find people actually begin to worship him as divine or something. When you read the Gospels, you get the impression that Jesus actually thought he was more than just an ordinary human being. Why, you almost get the impression that he thought he was God or something. And the professor said, that is not what a great human being does. Great human beings don't go around talking this way. People who talk this way, we get worried about. You know, and, and, and he says, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but by all ordinary standards of human decency, we would have to judge that Socrates was a greater man than Jesus. Now, here's the question opposed to me. I didn't think I had any reasons to believe that Jesus Christ was Lord. I didn't believe this Christian thing because I didn't know any Christians who could give me an intelligent reason why I should believe it. But something inside of me said it just might be true, so I didn't want to declare war on Jesus Christ. You know, I wanted to stay friends, you know, kind of do the cultural thing here. Yeah, nice guy, you know. Just in case, who knows what would happen on the judgment day. It's like you see him, it's like, sorry, I didn't know, or something. I wanted to have some excuse. But see, this professor was forcing my hand, and I want to force your hand if you're here this morning and you're not a believer. The way he forces the hand is this. You have got to either believe, really, if you look at the evidence that is there, you have to either believe that Jesus is in a class by himself above other religious teachers, or he's in a class by himself below other religious teachers. But whatever else you say about him, he's not just one more religious teacher. Religious teachers, you don't find Buddha or Gandhi or anybody else going around claiming to be God, claiming to be more than just an ordinary average individual. Maybe they're bright, maybe they're smart, maybe they've got good religious insights, but they understand that they are a human being along with the rest of us. But it really is the case that if you look at the New Testament just as a historical account of, of, of who Jesus was, you see that this guy went around claiming to be something more than just an ordinary average individual. You find people worshiping him, Matthew 28, 7. They fall down at his feet and they worship him, Matthew 28, 19. They fall down and worship him, Hebrews 1, 6. says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now when Peter is worshipped, Peter is just an ordinary average individual Jew in the first century, when he's worshipped in Acts chapter 10, he immediately says, stop it. These Gentiles are worshiping him. Read it. It's verse 35 or 24, something like that. In Acts chapter 10, he says, Stop, don't do that. I'm just a man like you. Worship God. In fact, in Revelations 19 and in Revelations 20, an angel is worshipped. And the angel says, Don't do that. I'm just a, a fellow servant like you. Don't, don't do that. Because angels know and decent uh, people know that they are not to be worshipped. It's blasphemy to be worshipped. Because you're just an ordinary human individual. But Jesus Christ, people fall at his feet and they worship him. And Jesus doesn't say, stop it. He says, blessed are you. In Matthew 20, 28, uh, the doubting Thomas sees Jesus Christ appearing to him. And he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, you're getting a little carried away. Stop it. You know, you're over-enthusiastic. 
No, Jesus says, blessed are you for you have seen and believed. He sees this as a, as a profession of faith. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5 says that Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed forever. Titus 2, 13 says He's our great God and Savior. The Bible exalts Him as being one with the Creator of the universe. That's why when Jesus comes around, He starts talking to people. He doesn't talk like an ordinary religious teacher. John chapter 5, verse 23 says this. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven. Now, first of all, what kind of human being goes around talking about coming down from heaven? You know, most of us are sort of born. You know, I came out of my mom. Oh, I came down from heaven. Okay, so you see that there's this, this guy's not talking the way ordinary rabbis in the first century talk. I have come down from heaven. What would you think about me if I said, I've come down from heaven to bless you all? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love a puke. Okay, now what I want you to say if I said this in John chapter 5, verse 23. I've come down from heaven that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Think about this. What would you think about me if I were to say to you, Lynn, I want a little respect out of you. You're a trustee. I'm the senior pastor. I want a little respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Um, well, you know, I'm not asking for too much. Why don't you just think about me the way you think about mm, God? <laughs> honor me the way you'd honor God. You see, this is not, you, you would either, you know, you just may need me to be a little, a little crazy or maybe even evil, but you wouldn't go out there and think, oh, what a nice teaching he had. You know, I, this, this sets a person apart when they talk like this. And Jesus always talks like this. John chapter 14, he says in verse 8, uh, Philip says, you know, Jesus, you've been talking about the Father. Will you just show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Now, what would you think about me if, you know, if we were to say, Greg, you're always preaching about God. Will you just show us God? And if I were to go, don't you know me, then? If you see me, you see God. You see? You see how it is? You know, I think we get too used to it, but it's stunning. It, 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 it's, a, it's amazing. You see, Jesus, He doesn't let you. He doesn't let you get off with this sloppy thinking that we got going on in our culture where we want to just say Jesus is an ascended master. Oh, Jesus is a great prophet. Oh, what great teachings Jesus gave. You see, if you understand, that's the one position that is that just shows that you I have never read this stuff. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't, you're not dealing with the evidence. You've got to either, when you leave here this morning, if you've listened to what I've been saying, you either have to say, this man was in fact who he said he was. He's the Lord God Almighty and I commit my life to live to Him the rest of my days or go out of here saying this is the worst loony demonic hoax I've ever heard in my life and spend your life dedicated to, to, to getting the thing off the face of the earth because it's deceiving people all over the place but don't go out of here saying oh what a nice teaching I'm a better citizen now or something silly like that because Jesus doesn't let you do that you either have to spit at him or bow your knee to him he forces the hand he's not in the class with other religious teachers at all he's in a different thing altogether so now here's the question why think that that is true why think that the claims of Jesus Christ are true? The question really comes down to be this. And see, this is, if you follow me here, this is, um, I think, an irrefutable argument. If you just think, I, I, some of you know that I, I go around uh, uh, different places a couple times a year and I debate atheists and I debate skeptics. I'm going to be debating a, a member of the Jesus Seminar, this liberal think tank that thinks that Jesus was just a philosopher. Uh, I got a couple of debates next month. And, and someone asked me recently, well, you know, are you just really confident of your debating skills? And the truth is, is that I've never, I don't know anything about debate. I've never taken a class in debate. I've never, I never was a debater. I, I, I'm not confident about my debating skills. But I'm really confident of the truth of my position. The position stands on its own. 
it's solid. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see it. Um, I, so so he, he, here's the thing. We know, this is this much is irrefutable, that the early disciples of Jesus, you, you just see evidence of it right here in the verse that we read. They went around saying that Jesus Christ was the Lord God. They, against all of their own cultural presuppositions, believed. They said that Jesus Christ was the Lord God, God on earth, God incarnate. They worshipped Him as the creator of the world. That was the standard thing that all Christians do. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. They said the reason... You ask the question, what could have convinced these Jews against all of their cultural presuppositions that a God can't be a man? What could have possibly convinced them that in fact God had become a man? And the answer they give is this. Jesus Christ lived, first of all, a sinless life. He lived a, now, that's interesting, to have left the reputation of being sinless. Is there anybody in this room who will die and have rumors spread about them that they were sinless? It's not going to happen to me. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, that, that's one rumor I guarantee will never be spread about me. Oh yeah, he was sinless. Um, but Jesus Christ, he, his disciples said he was sinless. And they lived with him. Even his brother James. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, that, that's something. Um, they said that he did miracles. He lived his exemplary life, a sinless life, a life of love, unprecedented love. But most importantly, he, lived, he did these miracles that showed there were signs of God. And then he died and rose from the dead. And therefore we believe that he is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, Question. If Jesus didn't do the miracles, if Jesus didn't live a sinless life, if Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead, somebody explain to me how it is that the disciples thought that He uh, lived a sinless life, that He did the miracles, and that He died and rose from the dead. It's not like these guys had reasons to make this sort of thing up. They all shed their blood for it. They went out into a hostile world, preached to a hostile audience, laid down their lives. Some of them had to watch their kids get fed to lions when Nero uh, lost his persecution on Christians in the 60s. They believed that what they were saying was true, and that's why they were willing to die for it. If, in fact, Jesus was, as many of these liberal scholars are saying, just a cynic philosopher, just sort of a political or religious revolutionary, and a radical egalitarian, he had a radical new teaching. If Jesus was walking around with his radical new teaching, but actually was not making divine claims, was not doing miracles, did not rise from the dead, how do you explain the fact that his disciples got it so wrong to the point where they thought that he made divine claims, they thought that he did the miracles, they thought that he rose from the dead, and they were willing to die for it? You see, if in fact Jesus did make divine claims, did live a sinless life, did do the miracles, and did rise from the dead, now it's clear. I can understand. It would take something like that to convince all of these disciples that he was who he said he was and, 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 and make them willing to die for it. But if that's not true, if Jesus was not the Son of God, did not make the divine claims, did not live the sinless life, did not do the miracles and did not rise from the dead, now someone at, tell me what is the alternative explanation? What is the alternative explanation? I submit to you that there is none. The only option you have is to say, well, it's all myth. It's all myth. And let's think about that. It's all a myth. You know, and, 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 and you know, myths get told, stories get made up. Um, so maybe that's what this is. Maybe Jesus is a tall tale that got spun. You're not buying that one? Well, I was at the University of Minnesota my first year in, in college. And um, I remember sitting there, my faith was already kind of getting shaky because I didn't have any Christians around who could give me reasons to believe. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm so intent on teaching believers to have reasons to believe. It's because I was a casualty of Christians not having that. And there are many of them out there, especially on campuses. And this is a little commercial. We're going to be starting a ministry this fall 
uh, reaching out to, uh, among other things, uh, college campuses, praise God. Uh, we need that. Uh, because there's kids who are, there's just this idea out there uh, uh, that, that uh, the smart people are all the non-Christians. And that's just a crock, a total crock. Um, so I'm sitting in this, uh, can- in this classroom on, on the Bible as literature. And the professor you know, starts to teach us this stuff about how Jesus was really uh, a radical egalitarian, uh, kind of a feminist, a cynic philosopher, and other things like that. Um, and all the stories about him being divine and about the miracles and the resurrection, that's all myth. Well, someone raised their hand and said, well, wait a minute, how come the disciples thought he was God? I mean, how do you explain that? And, and the, the, the professor sort of chuckled his educated laugh. <laughs> and... Um, once again, I must tolerate these peons with their silly questions. And he said, he said this, you know, basically with this air of, oh, you have so much to learn. Um, he says, you, you know, if you look at religious history, this sort of thing happens all the time. Um, you look at Buddha. Buddha was an atheist. He didn't even believe in God himself. And yet we find the followers of Buddha worshipping him as God later on. So, if... <laughs> If it could happen to Buddha, if Buddha could be transformed from being an atheist to himself a god, well then of course it could happen to Jesus being transformed from a preacher to God. It's really not that unusual. It happens all the time in the history of world religions. And I'm sitting there without an answer, without an apologia, without any reason to say anything this guy is wrong, and I'm just thinking in my chair, kind of basically thinking to myself, I guess life was meaningless after all. I had a nice go of it for about a year, but now my faith is crashing, and I, I guess Christians really are nitwits, like my dad was saying, and, and that's it. It's just a big myth. Write it off. Well, let's take a little look at this here. Could it be myth? Could it be a story that's being just spun out of thin air, or the, you know, the fish story getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Here's what you've got to know. Two things about the comparison between Jesus and Buddha. With Buddha, it's true that there are some of his followers... Uh, one strand of Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism uh, does worship Buddha as a god, not the god, but as a god. But you've got to know this. And they tell stories about him being born of a virgin, doing miracles and things like that. True! But it took five centuries, 500 years, for that myth to develop. It grows over time. And after five centuries of the stories being told and whatnot and whatnot, yes, Buddha was, among some of his followers, revered as god. But see, in the, it, it, with Jesus, you don't have five centuries. You don't even have 50 years. We find right here, 22 years after Jesus died, they're worshiping Him as God. 22 years, and Paul's not inventing that doctrine. He's acting as though this is what they've always been doing all the time, which is exactly what the Gospels tell us. You don't have five centuries. The parallel is not a parallel at all. Even more importantly is this. With Buddha, you're dealing with a pagan culture that frequently revered people as divine. Uh, they had all sorts of stories about God, you know, about, about a human being being God and God being a human being and whatnot. Pagan, pagan cultures, uh, you know, are, are, do frequently have stories like that because they don't believe there's one transcendent God. There's a lot of gods and one of them comes down and becomes a man. So what? And still, in a pagan culture where they're used to that kind of a thinking, it took five centuries for Buddha to be transformed from a teacher into a god. But when, with Jesus Christ, we're not dealing with a pagan culture. We're dealing with monotheistic Orthodox Jews. And if there's anything that monotheist Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Jews believe, it is that God is up there, human beings are down here, and never the two shall meet. The idea of God becoming a man was totally foreign to them. In fact, they were against the idea. The Romans used to worship the emperors as divine. Theosanir was the term they used. A, a divine man. Um, and uh, so they would bow down the statues or whatever. But for that very reason, the Jews were repulsed by the idea that a god could become a man. That's why they wouldn't bow down to the emperor and why they were sometimes persecuted. 
So when Jesus becomes, as it were, becomes divine, uh, it is totally, totally different than when Buddha becomes divine. Uh, there's no parallel there whatsoever. You haven't explained anything. If you say, well, the, Jesus was original, originally just a cynic philosopher who a, a myth developed around and then people began to worship him as, as God. You haven't explained anything. There's no parallel between that and Buddha. Um, someone has got to explain to me how, you've got to go beyond that, how did this myth develop among those who knew Jesus, among those who followed Jesus to the point where they were willing to die for this. To say it was myth doesn't explain anything. Now, some people, like Burton Max, say, well, maybe they just, they, they, they just fabricated it. It's not an ordinary myth. It's, it's a fabricated myth. They just made up the story. Started with Marx, he thinks, and then uh, it got passed on to everybody else. But now there's a couple questions with that. For example, why would they make up this story? You know, it, it, that's like a bunch of people sitting around saying, well, we know Jesus is just an ordinary guy, but uh, wouldn't it be cool if he was God and, and did miracles and rose from the dead? And uh, let's go out and preach this and we'll probably get killed for it. Hey, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> you know, if, if they drove Rolls Royces and wore Rolex watches, maybe there'd be something to this idea, but there's no motive for them to do this whatsoever. And even if they had a motive, uh, there's no way they could have convinced their contemporaries of it because these contemporaries knew Jesus. You can't go around saying that a person who lived three years ago was doing miracles and rose from the dead when the people you're talking to knew the guy. You see, it, it just doesn't work. Now, if it's five centuries down the road, maybe you can get away with that. But not when you're dealing with the contemporaries of the man that you're talking about. There's no, there's no parallel to that. If Jesus Christ, in fact, made divine claims that he was the Son of God and proved it by the life that he lived, by the miracles that he did, and by the fact that he rose from the dead, now everything is understandable. Everything is clear. It makes sense. But if that's not true, if you refuse to believe that, you've got to come up with an alternative explanation. And I submit to you this morning that there is none. Zippo. On top of all that. I'm going to close with two more points. I'm on a roll here. Two more points is this. Unless something like the gospel portrait of Jesus is true, you can't explain the birth of early Christianity. But over and beyond that, the gospels, we have got so many reasons to trust them. Uh, just treating them like historical documents, they're trustworthy. Let me just give two brief points. Understand that the person of Jesus Christ, this is
extremely chauvinistic. Uh, uh, it was pathologically chauvinistic by 20th century standards. Women, you've come a long way. First century Jews believed that women could, couldn't help but tell lies. The way that you know that a woman was lying is that her lips would always move. Okay, that, that, was a, that, that, was a, that was the first century... That was the first century mindset. A woman could see a murder and she, the, the murderer would go free. She wasn't allowed to testify in court. Unless there was a man that confirmed that in this one case the woman got it right. You see, it was extremely sexist. So Paul, he leaves the women out of his account in 1 Corinthians 15 because no one's going to believe him anyway. Well, include the men. Those are the credible witnesses. Well, the Gospels, who's the first one to find the tomb empty and to see the resurrected Lord in the Gospels? It's women. In fact, it's a prostitute woman. Uh, who sees the Lord for the first time. And where are the men? They're hiding out in the shack, scared to death, biting their nails. And then the women are doing, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, and, and, and so the women see it and they run and tell the disciples and of course these Jewish men don't believe them. No way, no, no. Someone's going, come on, I got out of here. You see, but... There's no reason. The point is, if you're trying to sell a lie in the first century, the last thing you're going to do is to, to hang the whole story on the credibility of a, of a bunch of women, some of whom are of ill repute. The only motive they would ever have for including that kind of information in the Gospels is that, in fact, it happened that way. And they're interested in telling the truth. If you want to convey a story that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the very, very, very last thing you would ever put in the mouth of Jesus is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, on the cross, that's what Jesus cries out. My God, my God. Now, 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 to this day, that's a puzzling statement. I think it's a profound statement, but you've got to do a lot of thinking to, to, to discover it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, if you're trying to convince people that Jesus is God, I just, I'm trying to picture the disciples saying, okay, how can we really make this thing sell? Now, why they do that? No one knows. Uh, someone needs to tell me that. But let's say they all want to commit suicide by telling a story that would get them killed. So they want to say, how can we really sell this thing to get ourselves killed? Uh, that Jesus was something like that. I know. Let, let us have him die on the cross and we'll put into his mouth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would sell. Well, that would convince anybody that he's God. You get the point? That's a, that's a puzzling statement for the Lord, the Son of God, to cry out. That's a beautiful statement because it shows about the effect, the experience that he had coming under the judgment of sin. But if you're making the story up, you wouldn't put that in there. The fact that it's in there shows that the gospel accounts are reliable. Bottom line, you've got more sources than you, 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 you usually have in dealing with ancient events. Uh, when we talk about the person of Jesus Christ, you've got more sources, more reasons to believe than any other uh, ancient event. And these sources are inherently credible. On top of all that, if you think these sources are not credible and that Jesus was not the Son of God, didn't live a sinless life, didn't do the miracles, didn't rise from the dead, you have got a tremendous historical explanation to come up with. And no one has, as far as I'm concerned, ever adequately done that. So the question is this. The question is this. What are you going to wager your eternity on? You know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe there is an explanation out there. Maybe there is. I, I've, I read about this stuff a lot and I've never found it, but maybe, maybe there is. But what are you going to wager your eternity on? That's what it comes out to be. What are you going to bet on? When you leave here, you're betting on something. You're either betting on Jesus Christ being Lord and you're dedicating your life to that, or you're gonna, you better hope that He's not Lord, because if Christians are right, you're in bad shape if you leave here and you're not a Christian. Okay? What are you gonna bet on? What's, uh, you know, what, and what I'm here to tell you this morning is that you've got far, far, far more reasons to believe in Jesus Christ than you have not to believe in Jesus Christ. So the question I want to submit to you is this, will you bow your knee? Will you, will you, will you surrender your life to Him? Believers, I'm giving this to you so you go out of here uh, with a conviction that this stuff is real 
and, uh, and, and an ability to share it with others who might ask intelligent questions of you. See, we're talking about, whenever I talk about this stuff, it sort of like hits me again. We're talking about reality here, folks. Uh, this really did happen. This, this really, uh, Jesus is real. We're not playing church here. Uh, this isn't a religion here uh, that we're talking about. I'm talking reality. I'm talking, uh, uh, God really did become a man. I've got all the reasons in the world to believe that. Uh, I really don't give a rip about religion. I really don't care about that. Uh, that, that that's not my bag. Uh, I, I care about reality and what's real. I've got all the reasons to believe that what's real is that God became a man and died. Why? Because I was a sinner going to hell and He wanted me to live with Him in eternity forever. And it's the same thing for you. We're talking reality here, folks. And then this is real. This isn't a game. That's the way. We're talking reality and our task is to help other people see that we're talking about reality. For you here this morning who don't acknowledge that to be real, I want to know are you willing to do that here. In fact, what I'd like is, is this. I, I want to give you a chance. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. Uh, this is a Nicodemus kind of a prayer. Uh, it, it's a quiet kind of a prayer. But I want to give you the chance to this morning maybe do what you've never done before and that is to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. That's very different than going to church. That's very different than being a good person. That's very different than doing Minnesota night. It means surrendering everything about your life to Jesus Christ. Saying, Lord, you, if you take the trouble to become a man and die for me that I can go to heaven, I want to live my life for you. That's what this is about. It doesn't, it doesn't do a bit of good to acknowledge that Jesus is a nice guy. He doesn't want that. To acknowledge that he has some good teachings. That, that's an insult to him. A good teacher, wonderful prophet, you're doing nothing but insulting him. You either, should, you either have to recognize that he's the Lord God Almighty and commit your life to him, or go out of here dedicated to stamping out Christianity, because if it's not true, that's what you ought to do. So do you want to believe this morning? Would everyone close their eyes? All you have to close your eyes and I just want to ask this question. Is, anyone, is there anyone here this morning? I'm not going to call you out. I, 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 but I would like to pray for you here this morning who would like to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Last night we had four people give their heart to Jesus Christ. Uh, one of them is a relative of mine, praise God. Uh, and... and um, uh, and and I, so I just want to say, I'm not going to call you out, but would you just raise your hand just briefly so I can see you? And I'm going to pray for you here. Not by name or anything. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. Okay, thank you. Anyone else here want to... You're tired of religion. Okay, I see that hand. You can put it down. Uh, you're tired of religion. You're tired of doing the standard thing. You want reality. And you believe now that Jesus Christ is real. Anyone else? Okay, I see it in the back there. I'll pray for you. Okay, over here. Praise God. I, I'll be praying for you in there. I want to surrender my life to God. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and I want to commit my life to Him. Okay, I see your hand. Amen. Good. Anybody else? This is wonderful. This is wonderful. God made it so simple. He just wants your heart. That's all. It doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life. None of us do that. It means he'll be living inside of you, moving you towards his character. But right now it's just a matter of...